Father, I thank you for this beautiful morning. I thank you for the opportunity to study your word. I thank you for the reminder that it is enough. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me and that we lean on your word and not on um, the philosophies of men. And we pray that as we come to your word today, that you would work in all of our hearts to help us to desire to honor and glorify you more with our lives. We pray that you'd be honored in all that we do and you would bless this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. I'm excited to be back with you all. It's been a while since I've been teaching, but we have been in such capable hands. I actually kind of didn't want to follow up Eric. <laughs> I'm like, oh, here we go. I have to follow that uh, because he did such an excellent job. But I want to thank um, Eric and Dan and Christy and Sarah and Laura for the excellent job they did in teaching us and what a blessing it has been to be studying the word with them. And so as we come to study today, as always, I like us to review. I like us to remember where we've been, where we're going. And so if you've been with us, we started in 2017. Doesn't that sound like a long time ago? In this study, it's a two-year study. And before we even review, I just want to encourage you to finish strong. We, are, we only have four lessons left, right? Four lessons left. We are at the end, and it is a very good ending. Or like I, I like to think about it, really, this is kind of the prologue of history, right? But it's the end of, of the word that we have. And so don't miss out. After you've done all this work, don't miss out. And if you have some people in your small groups or people who have been hit and miss, encourage them to come back because it's going to be a wonderful conclusion um, as only God can do with God's story. So um, we started in Genesis. God created a perfect world, remember? And we were all in, um, I think my, my kids have a book that says everybody and everyone knew how good God was at the, in the very good beginning. But then quickly we fell. Quickly we sinned, right? And so we started looking for that promised serpent crusher in Genesis 3.15, the one who's going to come and who's going to reverse the curse. And then we're just going to quickly review the covenants. We, we saw that that serpent crusher was going to come through the Abrahamic covenant, right? He's going to be a seed of Abraham, and he is going to bless the whole world. And we learned that he is going to come from the tribe of Judah, and he's going to be a king. And then we were given the Mosaic Covenant, or Israel was given the Mosaic Covenant, and that showed us the character of God. It showed us what it means to be in relationship to him and to live under his rule. And it showed us how holy he was, and it pointed us to the need for one who could make us right with God, right? Because we can't keep the law. And then God gave us the, the, the Davidic Covenant, right, where he showed that he, we said we put God put all of his eggs in one basket, right? We said the Davidic covenant was the one to rule them all, that there's going to be one righteous king, one ruler who's coming, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Judah, and now the seed of David. And when this one comes and when this one rules, he will bring blessing to the whole world and there will be peace and the curse will be reversed, right? And that, we kind of ended the Old Testament longing for and looking for the king who is to come. And that brought us to the New Testament, and we saw that he came in Matthew, right? The king came, and he authenticated his ministry with his teaching and with his miracles, but he was rejected, and he was crucified, but he rose again, remember? And because of that rejection, we said that the kingdom was inaugurated, but we are not enjoying it in its full sense right now, right? We still live in a fallen world. The curse is not reversed yet. Christ has ascended to heaven, but he is coming again. And so then we said, for this time where we're waiting for his second coming and the full consummation of the kingdom, what is happening? Well, we are now in what we call the church age, and that took us to the book of Acts. And in Acts 1-8, we were told that the, the, the apostles were given the charge, and, and it was given eventually to the whole church, that we were supposed to take the gospel, that be witnesses to his resurrection and spread it from 
Ju um, Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth, right? And that's what we see coming out in the book of Acts, right? First, it started with the Jewish people, and then Peter had the vision, right, of the, the, the animals coming down on the cloud, and, and that this is supposed to go to the Gentiles, too. And then Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, and he goes and he spreads the church through the known world, right? He goes and plants churches all over the Roman Empire, and the gospel now is spreading. And we said as we looked at these letters, we called them letters to live by. We're the church, we're spreading the gospel, and how are we to live as we wait for Christ's return? And so I just want us to take a moment and think about the church, right? In this time and in this period, this is the, the means that God is working through. God is building his church, that it's the bride of Christ, and what is the purpose of the church in redemptive history? And I'm just going to go through a bullet points kind of quickly here, but just start with a few verses pointing out what is the purpose of the church. So start with me in 1 Peter 2.9. In 1 Peter 2.9, we read, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That the description of a royal priesthood, that's how God had described Israel. But remember, Israel has rejected him in unbelief. And now we are taking up that mantle. We are to be sharing the gospel. We are this holy priesthood. We are the chosen race. And we are to be doing what as that priesthood? Proclaiming the excellencies of God. So what is the church to do? We are to proclaim the excellencies of God. Then, I'm not going to read all these verses, but I will give you all the references. In Ephesians 2, 14 through 22, which should be familiar to us with some of our Bible memory, we are to demonstrate the unity of the Jews and the Gentiles in one body, right? God is creating, we said in Luke, a new humanity, right? At that time, it was one of the greatest racial um, tensions you could have, but God is making them one in Christ, where there's neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised nor uncircumcised, there's slave or free, we're, we're all in Christ. So he is making us one body. And then in Acts 1.8, Ephesians 6.19, Colossians 4.3-5, we are to serve as God's witnesses to the world. In light of Israel's failure, we are now the um, engine or the vehicle to proclaim the gospel. In 2 Peter 3.12, we are to hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. Did you notice on the lesson that when we obey, that actually hastens and causes God to come sooner, right? You, you think, I want God to come? Obey, obey. That hastens the coming of the Lord. 1 Timothy 3.15, we are to be a pillar and foundation of truth. We talked about that too in the lesson, how the world doesn't even know what's true anymore. But the church does, because we have the revealed word of God, and we are to be that pillar and foundation. In Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, another verse we've memorized, we are the beginning of God's plan to bring all things in heaven and on earth together in one head. F.F. Um, F. Bruce says in his commentary, the church thus appears to be God's pilot scheme for the reconciled universe of the future, the mystery of God's will to be administered in the fullness of time when the things in heaven and the things on earth are brought together in Christ. That's something that the church is, is to do. We're a vehicle of. Ephesians 3.10, we are to reveal God's manifold wisdom to the rulers and the authorities even in the heavenly realms. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we are to wait for Christ's return. Um, one commentator um, says, had the early church followers of Jesus not believed that he would return from heaven as a messianic Lord, Christianity all, would almost certainly not have come into existence. Belief in the return of Christ is what gave the resurrection its real significance by promising the realization of Christ's messianic rule on the plane of human history. All right? So we have to wait for his return, and he's honored by that. 2 Timothy 2.12, we are to reign with Christ. We are to reign with Christ. Also Revelation 2.26 and 27. 
And finally, we are to judge the world and the angels, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3. And Paul reminds the Corinthians of that, drawing on what we learned in Daniel chapter 7, that one day we are going to rule with Christ and we are going to judge the world and the angels. So that's what the church is doing. That is the purpose of the church. That is what we are all corporately a part of as part of the church. And so as we see church history, and we see his history from the beginning now, moving forward, now we're coming to the close. And today in our lessons, we're coming to the end of the canon, right? Scripture is about to be complete. These are the, the last books that were written. And so Peter and John and Jude write these last books. And we're not going to be able to look at all of them. We're going to look primarily at 2 Peter and 2 and 3 John. Jude, really almost everything in Jude is in 2 Peter. They're incredibly parallel books. And so as the canon's closing, what is on the hearts of the leaders of church? We can't know for sure because of church tradition, but John, we believe, is the last apostle to die. And Peter was one of the last. Okay, so many of the apostles have already died. Paul, most likely, and most commentators believe, has already died. So we're, and so pretty soon we're not going to be able to call, lean on them anymore. They're passing it on. So what is going to be our authority? Who are we going to look to? Who, and what is their final words to us? They want us to be aware of false teachers and false teaching that could creep into the church. They want us to have confidence in the word of God because that's going to be our authority with the apostles gone. So that's what we're going to look at today. And that's going to bring us to our first point, which is to know your scriptures. Our first point today is to know your scriptures. So turn with me to 2 John. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. 2 John, verses 1 through 4. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. You notice how many times in those several paragraphs, truth, 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 we have to know the truth. And then turn with me to 3 John, again, verses 1 through 4. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly that when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So we see that we have to walk in truth and that walking in the truth is knowing and obeying the word. John MacArthur says the most important thing in the world is divine truth revealed from God. The most important thing in the world is divine truth revealed from God. How important is the word? We could spend probably our entire hour just looking at verses that speak in scripture to the, to the importance of scripture. Uh, Mark never actually really memorized Psalm 119 and recited it at a conference one time, and everyone said of all the events at the, at the conference, listening to what Psalm 119 recited was the most impactful thing on them. And what's Psalm 119 all about? The word of God, right? We could spend our whole time, but we're just going to look at a few verses. Um, listen as I read Deuteronomy 8.11. It says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. How could we forget God? By not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Jeremiah 2.31, O generation, heed the word of the Lord. John 15.10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then, of course, in our lesson, turn with me to first, Second Peter 1. And in Second Peter 1, reread, it's starting in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice that was born to him by the majestic glory, 
This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What is this event that Peter is referencing? He's talking about Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Peter, James, and John were Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they saw him and the glory that he's going to have in his kingdom when it's inaugurated. And what is Peter saying is more sure than the eyewitness account of that event? is the word of God. He's saying more sure than experience is the word of God. John MacArthur says on this that Peter is ranking scripture over experience. The prophetic word is more complete, more permanent, more authoritative than ex the experience of anyone. More specifically, the word of God is a more reliable verification of the teaching about the person, atonement, and second coming of Christ than even the genuine firsthand experiences of the apostles themselves. And what is the emphasis of this text too? That scripture is not from man. Right? This is not a man-made religion. This is not something where we make it up and it's our philosophies. It was given to them by God. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And finally, I'd like to read to you, since we're not going to read Psalm 119, a quote from Kevin DeYoung about Psalm 119, where he says, According to the psalm, the word of God is the way of happiness, the way to avoid shame, the way of safety, and the way of good counsel. The word gives us strength and hope. It provides wisdom and shows us the way we should go. We are to delight, desire, and depend on the word. So how are we called to respond? We sing, speak, study, store up, obey, praise God for, and pray according to the word. This is the spiritual reaction that the spirit should produce in us when we fully grasp all that the Bible teaches about itself. So how important is the word of God? Hopefully that little survey <laughs> and, and the study and the fact that we're here studying the word of God this is our authority. And why is Peter emphasizing this in 2 Peter right before he's going to talk to us about chapter 2? Like literally the next verse is, but false teachers. You have to know the truth to know the error, right? When they teach people how to handle counterfeit, to recognize counterfeit money, they only ever handle real money. So that as soon as they see the counterfeit, they can identify it because they know what's real. We have to know the word. We have to be assured of its authority. We have to be assured of its truth. And that's what anchors and grounds us. That's what holds us steady. And that's what allows us to identify false teachers, which is our second point. Know your adversaries. You have to know your wor the word, and we have to know your adversaries. So we'll just continue reading in 2 Peter, verses um, one th chapter 2, 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, <coughs> bringing upon them swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And then jump down with me to verse 10. In verse 10 it says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. And then, um, and actually continues in um, this whole chapter, look at verse 12. 
Um, these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, rev revealing, rev sorry, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam. Um, in verse 17, it says, These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. From them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to have turned back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So we see a list of characteristics and outcomes of false teachers. No specific heresy is really mentioned in Second Peter, just this description of false teachers and, the, and, the, and the, what they will look like and what they will do. And so we see, one, that they're going to come from among us. I think sometimes we always think that they're out there, okay? Or that they come in with some kind of, I don't know, horns or a sign or some kind of indicating feature that they are false teachers. But they come up unnoticed. They come up subtly. And they come up using the word of God. They will use scripture to defend their position. They will use scripture to lead you astray. They will, so how do you know? Because they're going to twist it. They're not going to use it appropriately. They're going to twist it. But I can't tell you how many times a Jehovah's Witness, um, recently I had somebody that was from the world religion, I can't remember, it's a really long title, but they use scripture. They take me to scriptures to prove that God was a woman. Now, obviously you can't, but they try. They, take, they use scriptures to try to convince me of their false religion. And if you don't know the word, you might not be clear how they're twisting it. You might not be clear how they're lying about it or how they're taking it out of context, right? So the false teachers come up from among you. They're going to be confident, right? You know, they, they, bold <coughs> says they boldly speak about these things, right? They're confident, and they mock spiritual authority. They're carnal, they're sensual, they're greedy. Did you hear the description of them? When it says their eyes full of adultery, it means they look at every single woman with adultery in their hearts. They think every single woman is a, it makes me think of what Pastor Brian said on Sunday about Ashley Madison, right? Like adultery is, it's, it's okay, and, it's, and everyone's um, a candidate in their mind, right? They mock authority. What they do is they disconnect holiness from salvation. You can be saved and live however you want. And they're going to line their pockets teaching you this. There's something in it for them, right? They're greedy, and the greed is emphasized over and over and over again. They're insatiable, and they promise what they cannot deliver, right? They promise what they can't deliver. So that's what we should be on guard for. But then we come to the books of Second and Third John, and even First John, the heresy gets a little bit more specific, okay? So we're still dealing with false teachers in Second and Third John, but he gets more specific. And there's really two issues that he de deal deals with. One is false teachers and hospitality. So if you're back in Second John, and he's talking, and you're thinking, well, why can't we, and he says, um, sorry, Third John. Um, he said, beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts, with these brothers who have testified your love, you will do well to send them on your journey. 
Um, and we need to support, okay, I'm sorry, I've lost my spot. Sorry, so if I come to you, where he says in second or third John that you are not to let them into your home. Verse 10 in second John, I apologize, I lost my spot. So if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked work. Have you ever read that verse and thought like you're not even supposed to let, oh, excuse me, you're not even supposed to let an unbeliever come into your home? You're not supposed to open the door to the Mormons when they knock and want to witness to you? Like, we're not supposed to even greet them. Have you ever wondered what that meant? So in the old, in this era, in this culture, what was happening and what was normal was that you, every religion would send their missionaries out, okay? And they would all go door to door, and the way that you, su- you would support them by taking them in, you'd feed them, you'd provide for them, you'd give them shelter while they evangelize, I guess, your city, and then you'd give them the means to go to the next place. Um, one commentator says of this, that devotees of various religions tramp the roads, extolling the virtues of the deity of their choice, and collecting subscriptions from the public. Thus a slave of the Syrian goddess has put on record how he traveled into the service of his lady and at each journey brought back 70 bags. Okay? So what they're saying is you have to be distinct from this. When you took these people in, it'd be like us putting a political candidate sign in our yard. Okay? So when I put a sign in my yard, whatever candidate, I'm saying they represent my values. They're getting my vote. I support their platform they represent me. I'm behind them. And maybe we have distinct differences, but when we put the sign in the yard, that's not what's communicated, right? What's communicated is I support this. And so they're saying we can't do that. We can't take in these false teachers because Christians are supposed to be very hospitable, right? Because you are aiding in the work of false religion. So in our context today, when someone comes and knocks on your door and you share the gospel with them, you're not aiding in that work. When you have unbelievers into your home to share the gospel with them and show, you're not aiding in their work. You're not giving money to their cause. You're not, you're not, does that, does the difference make sense? So he's saying you can't participate in their work. And what you must do instead, because now the Christians are going out and they're evangelizing. He's saying you have to give hospitality to them and you need to support their work because we don't want unbelievers to be confused. We don't want unbelievers to support them and think, well, you know, sometimes they would be like, I'm going to cover my bases with all the gods, right? All the false gods. We need to be distinct from that. And so there's Christian work that needs to be supported by Christians. And so that was the first heresy he was dealing with, that we need to not be associated with false teachers, but we need to support the truth. And we need to give our money and our time and our effort to that. And he commends Gaius as, an exa- as a great example of one who is doing that well. Then the second heresy that they're dealing with was denying the incarnation. It's, it's basically a precursor to what becomes known as Gnosticism. It wasn't in its full-blown f- effect yet, but Gnosticism was coming on the scene. And what is Gnosticism? It is saying that the physical is evil and bad, and the spiritual is good. Why does that matter? There's a few uh, ways that it plays out. One would be, if the physical is evil and bad, and the spiritual is what's good, you can go do whatever you want physically, because you're not touching the spirit. Go live immorally. Go do whatever you want in the body. It doesn't matter. The body's evil anyway. Have all this freedom that you want. The spirit's not going to get touched by that. It's still going to be okay. Or, flip it around, you have to like persecute and destroy and treat your body horribly because it's evil. You're trying to somehow stamp the wickedness out of it because it's so bad. But where it really, the rubber really meets the road is they deny the incarnation that Christ was fully man right? Because if he was man, he had to be evil because physical matter is evil. How does that play out practically in our life? What, was, what are the dangers of believing that? 
Well, one, in 1 John 2, 3, if you believe this, you can't know God, right? Because 1 John 2, 3 says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. John 8, 19 says, so they were saying to him, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. And 1 John 4, 15 says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So if you deny the incarnation, you can't know God. Secondly, you can't be saved, right? Hebrews 2, 9, and according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Pastor Brian said it so wonderfully on Sunday. Jesus had to be man to die. A spirit doesn't die. He had to be man to die for our sin and shed his blood. He had to be God so he could pay the infinite price that our sin cost, right? He has to be both, or we can't be saved. 2 Timothy 2.5, if we, we, so we would have, we can't know God, we can't be saved, we also have no mediator. One mediator between God and man, the man, the man, Christ Jesus, okay? We would have no example to follow. 2 Peter 2.21, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And we would have no sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And the warning is concluded in 2 John 8-9, through watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And then we're also exhorted to remember, and we looked at this in detail in the lesson, remember the end of false teachers. Even those verses I read to you, their destruction is sure. They say, nothing's going to happen, just like the people in Noah's day said, that the flood came, right? God is going to judge the earth in fire. God is going to come, and he's going to judge them. They will be destroyed. And to remember our hope that he is going to come again. Remember all those lessons. why, Why do we suffer? Why do we endure in suffering? Because we have an inheritance that is guaranteed, that is kept in heaven for us. Our salvation is secure. His return is secure. Our end is with Christ, and their end is destruction. We don't want to follow someone down the path to destruction. So, as we go to our third point, we've seen we need to have truth, and we need to walk and watch out for false teachers. And so truth and love are a great protection against false teachers. John Piper states it this way, life together in Christian love is a great protection against deception. That's why it is so critical that we do not forsake the meeting that we come to corporate worship, Sunday morning, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, women's Bible, that we come together as believers. That is a great protection against deception. And why did we put truth and love together? Because if you have truth without love, you have puffed up knowledge and pride. That God is opposed to proud. If you have love without truth, you have empty sentiment. You don't really have love. They have to go together. Which brings us, and, and you see that John pairs them together throughout all three of his letters, right? Constantly puts them together. So our third point is we must walk in obedience, and expect persecution. So in light of the truth of Scripture and the danger of false teachers, Peter says we are to make, turn back to 2 Peter chapter 1, we are to make our calling and election sure. Verse 3 of chapter 1, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. 
For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, throughout second and third, <coughs> first through third John, over and over again, he says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you walk in the truth, then you are my children. So we are called to, we are saved. And then over and again, he says, you've been called by God. God saves you. These verses are not saying that your works save you. They're saying that because you are saved, you will produce fruit, right? Mark Dever says it this way, we are saved by faith, but purity of life is evidenced by the reality of the salvation in our lives. When we live this life of purity, when we live this life of obedience, that will give us assurance that God is at work in our life and of our salvation. Matthew 2.22 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets was a term for all of Scripture, right? When Jesus said it, there was only the Old Testament. All of Scripture hangs on loving God and loving man. So what is the connection between love and truth? John Stott says this, this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands, and his command is that you walk in love. So if we are saved, we will love. If we love, we will obey. If we obey, we will have assurance of the work that God is doing in our life. You see how that all goes together? God saves. And then we love him, so we obey him. We love him because he first loved us. It all is connected. Christian love and truth always are in perfect harmony with one another. Like I said, you can't have the one without the other. You don't have true love without truth, and truth without love is pride often. So it is when we are united in the truth of Scripture that that's when true and meaningful fellowship can occur. That's why I love women's Bible study, because the fellowship and the friendship comes out of the study of the Word. C.S. Lewis says, though, because when we think about this, we, the emphasis often in John 2 is that we'd have unity, right? That, we have, that when we love each other, when we're walking the truth, we'd have unity. C.S. Lewis says that if you seek unity, you will find neither unity nor truth. But if you seek the light of truth, you will find unity and truth. And that's what happens with a lot of false teachers. In the name of unity, in the name of love, in the name of getting along, we're just going to ignore truth, right? We're going to find this one little slice of the pie we can agree on, and we're going to ignore all the rest of truth. And that's where many religions and many churches compromise, because in the name of unity, we're not going to care, or in the name of loving them. This is harsh. It's harsh to say, I mean, can you imagine they, Peter called these people unreasoning animals. Can you imagine saying that and not being absolutely if you ever said that on a social media site, get off. <laughs> Our world can't handle that kind of truth, right? So truth and unity, unity is the product of loving, love and truth going together. You can't flip it. When you pursue truth, then in God's word and in the truth, that's what brings us together. That's what holds us together. As we love in the truth, that's how unity is produced. And we flip it on its head and we seek unity at the expense of love and truth. In the name of them, but really redefining them. So we need to walk in the truth. We also, and, and in love, and there are many applications of that. And I just want to look at, a, at two, just two different ways that we can apply that. Um, if we want to walk in truth and we want to walk in love, 
we can't do that without study and planning. And that really came clear even in our discussion in, our, in my small group this morning, that you have to plan and study. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He said, I defy you to read the life of any saint that has ever adorned the life of a church without seeing at once that the greatest characteristic in the life of that saint was discipline and order. Invariably, it is the universal characteristic of all the outstanding men and women of God. Read about Henry Martin, David Brainerd, Jonathan Edwards, the brothers Wesley and Whitfield. Read their journals. It does not matter what branch of the church they belong to that they have, the, sorry, it does not matter what branch of the church they belong to. They have all disciplined their lives and have insisted upon the need for this and obviously it is something that is thoroughly scriptural, scriptural and absolutely essential. It comes back to discipline and order. So, what is the greatest threat to our discipline and order? It's our time management. And really, I want to talk about our discretionary time. We all have to work, right? We all, we all have to eat and sleep, and um, we all have responsibilities and obligations that are good and from God. So what do we do with that discretionary time? Psalm 19, 20, 90, 20, 12, excuse me, says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Ephesians 5, 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Times like manna is how I think about it. Remember in the Old Testament, God gave the manna, you just got enough manna for the day. You couldn't save it, you couldn't store it, you couldn't multiply it, you couldn't get some from your neighbor, you got your manna for the day. You just get 24 hours a day for as many days as God gives you, and you can't borrow somebody else's time, and you can't save a little bit for, you that's all you get, and when it's gone, it's gone. There's no, like, retirement plan for time, right? There's just the time, you, then it's finite, right? And so what are we doing? We're really pretty busy. We're very busy people, right? I can't remember the last time I talked to someone and I'm like, yeah, I got a lot of free time. That is not a conversation I have with people, okay? It doesn't matter what their stage of life. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Age, demographic, nothing. That everybody is busy. And so Kevin DeYoung says, when we are crazy busy, we put our souls at risk. The challenge is not to merely make a few bad habits go away. The challenge is to not let our spiritual lives slip away. The dangers are serious and they are growing. And few of us are as safe as we may think. And he points out three dangers when we're busy. He says, they busyness ruins our joy, it robs our hearts, and it covers up the rot in our souls. Because we get distracted. We don't want to feel that, that conviction, maybe, or the realities we have to deal with. So we distract ourselves. And what do we do? We really do it with social media. So I'm going to focus just on that one. Okay? So according to the AC Nielsen Corporation, the average American watches four hours of TV a day, which comes out to nine years of a 65-year person's life. An average woman watches 34 hours a week. And if you look at social media, you can add another hour and a half a day onto that. By contrast, how long does it take you to read through your Bible in a year? How many minutes a day? Ten. On average. You read about three chapters a day, some chapters a little longer, it's an average, ten minutes a day. If we spent as much time reading our Bible as we did on social media, we could read through our Bible 34 times a year. That's what my husband, the accountant, figured out for me. <laughs> so, there you go. So, if we spend all of our time, and you know what, I, I really regret the day I got a smartphone. Now I feel like the world has changed where I don't know that you can truly not use it anymore. Like, they don't even, do they even print maps anymore? Like, I need my GPS, right? But it has been a significant negative in my life. And as I've been thinking about it, it's kind of like candy. We could eat candy all day. That could be our food source. And we would be full, and it would taste good. And it would rot our bodies, right? It would kill us. That's what technology is like for the mind, right? 
So if we want to be people who are walking in love and truth and aware of false teachers, we have to be people who are disciplined and ordered, and we have to manage our time. And that's just, I mean, that could be a whole conference, right? That's just a little piece of the pie. The second thing we need to do, and that John says over and over again, he says, I testify that Gaius did this, and I testify that Demetrius did this, and then I heard of the testimony of your love for the saints, from the missionaries who come back to John. John is commending them for what they did. He testifies about the good works of these people. He commends them. And as we're looking to love others, what do you see first when you look at your husband, your parents, I really notice this with my kids, <laughs> siblings, your people at church, your best friends, the people you minister with, people you work with, do you first see the problems? Do you first see where they fail you? Do you first see the negativity? Do you first see those sin issues, right? If they were to describe you, would they describe you as somebody who builds them up in their faith? Or are we always more aware of sin than of grace? Look how John's always pointing out the, te- you know, the testimony gave us of how you loved these people and how they're testimony, testifying of your love and how Demetrius is able to be in... He's, and you see that throughout all the epistles. There's often recommend... The, the apostles are often recommending and commending people to each other. And this isn't to build up their pride because who does the work? Christ does the work. And, and Christ is the one who accomplishes this. But there is encouragement in that. So let's be like that and let's look for... the term we often use in Christian circles is evidences of grace. Evidence that God is at work in your life. Evidence that God is at work in the church. And what are evidences of grace? The fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22-23. When you see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control coming out of someone's life, that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's evidence of grace. When you see someone using their spiritual gifts, when you see them um, serving the church, using their administrative gifts, singing, teaching, gifts of service, especially the behind administration, giving, hospitality, there's long lists of them. Romans um, 12, 6 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. I, and some people have a really hard time identifying their gifts. Point out that you see that they're good at that. Point out how that's building up the body. Do you see someone suffering for Christ? Suffering for Christ, Colossians 1, 24. There's, there's lots of them. When you suffer for Christ, that's an evidence of grace in your life. What about killing sin in your life? Romans 6, 1 through 2, Romans 8, 13. When we are actively, you see someone getting victory over a sin in their life, that's God at work in their life. Encourage that. Hospitality. Are you friendly or are you hospitable? There's a difference, right? And it's not bad to be friendly, but it doesn't mean you're hospitable. It doesn't mean that you've brought someone into your life and you've brought them into your home and that your home is open and people know that. We had friends in California and they never locked their doors because whether they were home or not, their home was available. My sister literally went and threw a 4th of July party at their house when we were in college because they had nowhere else to go with a whole bunch of people from church with their full blessing. Cleaned it all up, left, and was like, thanks, because they had that kind of relationship, and they're like, that's exactly what we want our home for. It's always for God and God's use. And you could come any time of day, any time. You could pop in no matter what they were doing, whether, like I said, whether they were home or not. That's hospitality. And Peter says in 1 Peter 4 and 9, we're supposed to do it without grumbling. This hospitality is exhausting. My, my parents were, are amazing at hospitality to the point that, like, my uncle, <laughs> he lived in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. We lived in Bozeman, and so if you're driving most places, the freeway would take you past each other, and he would tell people, oh, you can go stay at Vanessa's house, and never even tell my mom he sent us. People would knock on the door, Peter sent us. <laughs> I'd be like, come on in. <laughs> we didn't even have a guest room, really, but she just kicked me out of my room, and it always worked, right? So be hospitable. You have a desire for the word, Matthew 5, 6, Deuteronomy 8, 3. If you just desire and long for and want the word in your life, that's evidence of grace. Do you love the church? Ephesians 4.16, that's evidences of grace. And we can't do this unless we're abiding in Christ's love. In 1 Peter 1, 
He talks about that over and over again. And so as we close, I just want to give us a, a quick warning. We've been studying the word for a long time, right? We've been doing this study for a long time, and John Stott says, Revelation carries with it responsibility, and the clearer the revelation, the greater the responsibility to believe it and obey it, okay? I heard a great definition of complacency. Complacency is being comfortable with danger. When we see danger, we're supposed to be alert, aware, you know, like if the fire alarm went off, we're not supposed to be like, huh, we're supposed to get out of the building, right? We're supposed to be concerned. But when we are comfortable with having knowledge without application, we're in a really, really dangerous place spiritually. John MacArthur says, spiritual growth is unrelated to the amount of theological information believers know. Some Christians have an adequate or even exceptional amount of biblical and theological knowledge and yet are shockingly immature spiritually. That is a dangerous position to be in because the more biblical information one receives but does not apply, the more deceived he becomes about his own spiritual condition. If you just take in the word and don't apply it, you deceive yourself and you don't even know your own spiritual condition. It is dangerous to be indifferent to salvation's call. And so the question that we leave with as we study the word is are we going to be diligent to pursue the word of God and obey it, right? Because if you know the truth, if you walk in the truth, you're walking in love, and if you're walking in love, you're obeying. It's all connected, right? So with that, the warning from Peter and John, know the word, be grounded in it, beware of false teachers, walk in truth and love. With that, we're going to be going into Revelation next week, the end. The canon's going to close. So four more lessons, finish strong. And look. I want to close with Jude, the benediction that he has at the end. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.